right, good morning to you. Take your Bibles if you would and let's turn to Luke chapter 8. We are in the study of the Gospel of Luke and we are just um, seeing the texts unfold for us, great narratives about the Lord Jesus Christ and we're just sort of extracting from them all kinds of amazing truths. Luke chapter 8, follow along as I read beginning in verse 26. Then they, that is, Jesus and the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, They ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And so he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So we turn our attention this morning to one of the most riveting confrontations between Jesus and the forces of evil ever recorded in Scripture. We've already seen a clash between the Lord and a demon back in chapter 4 when a tormented soul burst through the doors of the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus was teaching, and that demon who'd possessed the man tried to incite some kind of a mayhem and disrupt the Lord's path to the cross to disrupt his ministry. Of course, you remember that Jesus' divine power, of course, in that moment was so authoritative that he silenced the demon in that synagogue that day and commanded it to come out, and it immediately did as it was commanded to do. 
We've also noted throughout these studies of these early chapters of Luke that once people heard of Jesus' ability to deal with unclean spirits in their family members and friends, they were bringing all of their tormented loved ones to Jesus. And Luke 4 verse 41 says, the demons were coming out of many, crying out and saying, you are the son of God. And he would then rebuke them and he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. See, Satan was always trying to incite riots against Jesus to end the program of redemption before it began. Jesus was headed to the cross. The demons know the plan. Satan knows the plan. God has sovereignly put the plan in place, promised it in the Old Testament through prophets, and he has set the course. And even in Jesus' life and ministry, there were times when even the Jewish leaders couldn't seize him because his time had not yet come. But the demons and Satan were always trying to disrupt that and incite a riot so perhaps the people might take him by the throat and kill him there and then. And that's why they would blurt out who he was and try to incite the people. Chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, verse 21, it says, and at that very time he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. When you read these accounts, it becomes for the Christian an anchor for the soul, almost like no other, to know that the forces of evil are powerless against the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw a pretty amazing thing. We saw Jesus' power over creation, particularly nature's violent weather patterns. It was a display of power by a human being, the likes of which no mortal had ever seen. There was Jesus commanding the wind and the waves, and they were obeying him. He's Lord of all nature, as the song says. Lord of the storm. But while natural evil in the world is a frightening enough thing and can cause massive devastation to human life, the most terrifying kind of evil is moral evil. Because we identify with moral evil in a far greater way. We understand, to some degree, our own bent. And in we're transparent, it is the evil of the supernatural realm that is most unsettling to human beings. We can't see it. We can't comprehend it because it operates outside the limits of our own five senses. Many people want to try to deny the existence of Satan and evil spirits, but the Bible doesn't even flinch in presenting it. The Bible speaks of the forces of darkness with great clarity. In the scriptures, the testimony of the truth of God's written revelation is that the devil is in fact real. Revelation 12 verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So he's the serpent of old. That is to say he was in the garden deceiving Eve back in the book of Genesis. He is called the devil or diabolos or the slanderer. We might include slanderer slash murderer. Jesus indicates that in John 8, 44, when he says that he's a murderer from the beginning and, a, and the father of lies. This is all wrapped up in the idea of diabolos, the slanderer, the devil, his name is Satan, and though fools may try to deny his existence, he is real. We are never told in the scripture to become obsessed with who he is or what he's up to. 
We're only to know what the Bible tells us about him and then what the scriptures say as to how we're to walk faithfully with God in Christ so that we're never overtaken by Satan's tactics and his schemes. Let me just give you a brief summary of the various passages of scripture that tell us all we need to know. Now, I know sometimes in churches, people will put up things on their website and it'll say, hey, this cool series on the love of God and things like that. Look, I don't want you to go away and say, hey, our pastor's doing a cool series on Satan. I don't want you to say stuff like that. So I'm only gonna give you a summary. I'm only gonna give you a little bit of a jet tour, really, of scripture's rap sheet for this character. It is true that he is real and he has an identity according to scripture. And his, um, the way he's defined or identified is one who is fallen and eternally cursed. Matthew 25, 41, the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. He is fallen and he's eternally cursed. There is a hell, the hottest hell, the Gehenna, like a fire that is prepared for him and his fallen angels. As I said, John 8, 44, he's a liar and a murderer. He's identified really as incorrigibly anti-God. He, he will not repent of his hatred of God. What is his realm? 1 John 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So his realm is this fallen world, this corrupt system, the earth, in his realm, there are fallen angels. He is called in Matthew 9, 34, the ruler of the demons. And according to Ephesians 6, a great battle passage uh, that describes his schemes and his tactics, it says there that, that ultimately there are rulers and powers and world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. That's his realm. The demons, the scheme and structure and hierarchy of demons over which he is the ruler. So his realm includes the world and its evil system. The realm includes, includes his demonic forces. It also includes evil men. Ephesians 2, verse 2, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Anyone who's not in Jesus Christ, who hasn't repented, doesn't matter what their life looks like, they are being controlled by the prince of it all. 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, we are told to pray for people to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. And as you remember, I read in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's his realm. What does the Bible say about his power? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the activity of Satan includes power and signs and false wonders. His powers are supernatural. He can do supernatural things. He can defy uh, time and space and such things that we're bound to. However, it's also true that the Bible describes him as finite. He's a created being. He was created sometime between uh, Genesis, well, he was created in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. He fell sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. Because Genesis 1.31, everything God had created was very good, including all the angelic hosts. And by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 1, we already have the serpent of old the serpent who is scheming to deceive. 
So he's supernatural, but he's finite. He's also, he does what he does by permission. Satan answers to the sovereign power of Almighty God. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. if you've just taken down some passages of Scripture. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. He has to ask permission. Job chapter 1, he goes to God and he says, have you, have you uh, watched Job obeying you because you bless him? Does he obey you without a cause? You protect him. And so God says, you can have everything he has, just don't touch him. So again, he operates under permission. I've mentioned his tactics. We're not ignorant of his schemes, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, verse 11. He deceives. He disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11.14. And death is in his power for those who are outside of Christ. Hebrews 2.14. Christ himself rendered powerless the devil who had the power of death in his hands. And so for those who don't know Christ, they will die in their sin and Satan holds them in his power in bondage. Death is his interest. He schemes, he deceives, he wants to kill. His purpose is to defy God. You remember when he met Jesus in the wilderness, he said, if you are the son of God, you say you're the son of God, prove it. He wants to defy God. And he wants to worship himself and to have the entire world worship him. You remember he also said to Jesus in that wilderness temptation, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these things. That's his interest. What's his present status between now and his judgment? Well, he's the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. He's the ruler of this world. But he's also aware that his time is short, Revelation 12, 12. So he's, he's fully aware of his impending doom He is utterly and eternally defeated by Christ, Hebrews 2, who at the cross defeated death for us that we might live for him. And so therefore Satan is storing up wrath for himself. What's his history with Jesus while Jesus was in his earthly ministry? Well, all along Satan tried to thwart the messianic prophecies from coming true. He failed to thwart the fulfilled messianic prophecy about Jesus' birth. He failed to thwart the incarnation. He failed to kill Jesus as an infant when he tried to do so through Herod. He failed to corrupt Jesus at his testing in the wilderness. He failed to corrupt him through any of the temptations Jesus met all his life. Satan failed to cause Jesus' premature death by these other means that he was using. He failed to disrupt Jesus' ministry timetable, which was always intact. He failed to keep sinners from believing in Jesus, especially the demon-possessed. Jesus was continually healing and restoring and delivering people from evil. He failed to deceive Jesus into refusing to bear sin. He failed to prevent Israel and Rome from fulfilling every scripture about the substitutionary death of Christ. He failed to discredit Jesus to his true disciples so that they wouldn't ultimately believe in him. No, every one of them did who was in him truly. He failed to destroy the faith of the disciples and they went all the way to their martyrs' deaths. 
He failed to make Jesus undergo decay in the grave. He failed to keep him in the grave and prevent the resurrection. He tried to prevent the ascension of Christ to the right hand of power in all such things, and he failed to do so. He failed to stop martyrdom from planting more seeds for the church. He failed to stop the spread of the gospel even through the darkest periods of church history, and he failed to stop the power of the gospel through all generations of those who believe. Satan is a failure. Christ is the victor. So this brings us to this narrative. Jesus has just done an amazing thing by calming the storm. And the disciples then continue on their journey to the east side of the lake. And there, in the ministry of Jesus, is a confrontation with evil. A confrontation with evil. The first thing we note from the text is this is an area that is idolatrous and filled with Gentiles. It is an idolatrous Gentile territory in which this confrontation with evil takes place. Notice, they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. Now, just to briefly clear up a few different ways that the gospel writers speak about this place, Matthew 8, 28, you'll notice in your Bible, says the country of the Gadarenes, and Mark 5 says the country of the Gerizines, just like Luke puts it here. Clearly, if you study this area, there was a city, probably the larger of those cities, called Gadara, and history indicates that it was probably you know, the larger district and larger town, hence that's why Luke calls it opposite Galilee. And then there was another smaller town called Gergesa, or sometimes shortened to Gersa. And so Matthew seems to be referring to the region around the larger city of Gadara, while Mark and Luke seem to be pinpointing the location of this particular thing that happened. When Jesus arrives, he arrives probably at the little port on the east side of the lake of the little town or near the town of Gergesa or Gersa. And this is obviously Gentile territory. You have wealthy herdsmen um, with a massive herd of swine up on the cliffs. The Jews never would have gotten anywhere near such a thing. It would also be a place where a person could have become so steeped in sort of the vile practices of idolatry and false religion that they could end up with these two haunted men who violently come running down the hillside to confront Jesus. And let me just note something about the Gentile nations and what would happen when they would become steeped in idolatry. Idolatry is the most heinous thing a person could do in their corruption, to worship self and worship false gods and be held in bondage to them by demons. It is something that's an abomination to God who must be worshiped exclusively. He will not share his glory with any. It's interesting when you chase down information in the Old Testament about pagan worship. There were times in Israel's history when they got so caught up with the nations that they began to worship in the same practices of those pagan nations. And the prophets would speak of those practices. And in Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah rebukes Israel for those practices, but listen to the detail. They are a people, God says, who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, 
who sit among graves. That's a very interesting fact. They, they sit in and around graves and dead people and in tombs. And they spend the night in secret places. Who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Pagan nations were known for ritualistic meals, practices that involved food sacrificed to idols, and uh, often it was pork. God hated the, the practice of the pagans and separated his people from them. In Zechariah 13, 2, the prophet said, it'll come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I'll cut off the names of the idols from the land and I'll remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. God hated when Israel got caught up in unclean spirits and the practice of idolatries because those common practices in the Gentile territory would work their way into God's people. And demons were being worshipped in these territories. People living in tombs among the dead were part of the scheme of this whole culture. Eating ceremonial meals made from the flesh of animal sacrifices, which were dedicated to the unclean spirits to appease them. This was all part of the practice. The parallels in this story are remarkable. Notice verse 27. And when Jesus came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who hadn't put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. It's no surprise to us now, is it, to understand this. Satan always takes the idolater deeper and deeper into his irrational behavior and uncleanness and vileness. So it's an idolatrous territory, and here you have a focus in, narrow lens, to an immoral, violent tormentor. Matthew 8.28 says there were two of them. Two men ran down the hillside to confront Jesus. Mark mentions only one of them. So obviously this guy that Mark and Luke mention is sort of the standout of the two, probably well known as the most violent and the most immoral and the most defiled and perhaps even the biggest threat to others. Notice the tormentor's work. Matthew says that they were extremely violent. Notice Luke, the unclean spirit, verse 29, had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Here's Mark's account in Mark 5, verse 3 and 4, saying of this prominent one of the two, no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. The prominent one had been so dangerous that they'd often tried to lock him up with heavy chains and guards put on him and he would rip the steel shackles into pieces and he would break the chains and then the demons would take him and force him into the wilderness and back into the tombs. Furthermore, he's shameless. It says that he hadn't worn any clothes for a long time. Listen, any culture that gets away from the truth of God and denies God will be in bondage in that culture to demonic influences. And where demons want to take culture is away from coverings. Away from coverings. God covered our shame because he knew it would destroy us. He knew we'd destroy each other. 
for the consumption of the flesh. So he covered us as human beings who were fallen. Whenever you see cultures where they are shameless in their degradation and vileness and practices and and they want to leave behind those things that cover our shame, that is a sign of shamelessness. It's a sign of degradation. Our own country is in severe trouble, is it not? Undignified behavior is always what you see, and that's what you see here. Long periods of time without any covering. This is undignified behavior. And notice how tormented he is. He is driven out into the wilderness by the demon again and again. Mark 5, 5 says that constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Notice verse 30 of Luke 8. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He said, legion for many demons had entered him. Wow. Anytime you look into the history of godless cultures and nations, you always see the eventual same slide into degradation, increasing wickedness, and defilement of the conscience and of the mind. If a society opens its life and mind and heart up to evil long enough... Satan will eventually have you worshiping earthly things. You'll start worshiping people and power and objects. You'll eventually see the absence of shame and the exaltation of perversion. That is happening in our country. You'll see self-injury and internal torment and irrational behavior on the increase. You see that among the youth in our culture. Self-harm. Guilt, attempts at self-atonement. This is all the work of Satan to turn the human heart in on itself. You'll eventually see people come under the bondage of every vice and twisted thinking. There's always more violence and injustice. All of those things increase. And then on top of it, occultic practices increase. Why? Because mankind is constantly becoming mystical and more religious to try to self-atone rather than turn to Christ. And so there are fixations on communicating with the dead, which, by the way, is forbidden. These television shows where people purport to talk to the dead, that, Christians have no business being around any of that. If there's any communication going on there, it's demonic. That's why God forbid it. You'll see in those cultures a fixation on graveyards and mystical connections with what's beyond the grave. Greater false religion. Lying becomes the cultural norm. Murder becomes a question of pragmatics. Our country is murdering babies and we're selling their body parts and we're saying nothing about it. We're laughing. Lies and murder, fixation on mystery religions and death. I was reading recently about grave sucking, which is now the new practice among the the, the wild, charismatic sort of groups of people where they'll set somebody on top of the grave of someone thought to be a prophet and just sort of everyone will pray to suck the prophetic powers out of that person. Only Satan takes you to a graveyard for spirituality. 
Whenever Satan's involved, there will be the arrogant and sophisticated worshiper who loves man's power and intellect. And those will be right alongside the devastated lives of those who've descended into the bondage of their vice. And that's precisely what you see in this land east of the lake. It's exactly what you see at the shoreline when Jesus' boat hits the dock. This guy is completely out of his mind. He's wicked and shameless. He's gashed all over. He spent his days and nights crying out in exhausted, tormented anguish. He can't be helped. He can't be subdued. He has no hope unless Jesus goes there. He has no hope unless the Son of God, Jesus Christ the righteous, full of grace and truth, comes across the sea to meet him. The man has no hope unless... God, the God of all grace, is willing to bring that kind of divine power to this demon-infested countryside. And that's exactly where the text takes you, from the confrontation with evil to the tormentor's weakness leading up to the liberation of this man. Notice verse 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out, and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what do we have with each other, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Look, we've said it before, the demons know that Jesus, the man, is fully God in human flesh. They know it. Anybody tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God? He did several times, but even past that, his worst enemies said it. They know he has the power to torment them by doing to them as he pleases. They know that. They also know that he can lock them up until the judgment. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 31. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. It's, it's, the word here is an adjective of what later became a noun, the adjective form just meant bottomless. And so it came to be used in the Old Testament and even the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a a very deep place, a deep, dark place, uh, another realm so deep, so far away that humans didn't go there. And that adjective, bottomless, sort of became the noun, bottomless pit. And it was viewed as the place where evil spirits dwell, the deepest recesses. The deep place of the dead is sometimes its usage and the place where fallen spirits dwell. And that's really how it's being used in this context. And so Luke records that the demons didn't want to be sent to the place. You say, why wouldn't they want to be sent there? Don't they love that kind of thing? Well, not this particular place because according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, some demons were so vile in their history in the Old Testament against humanity that they were locked up in that place permanently and will be there till they're thrown into the lake of fire. So there are some incarcerated demons so vile and so bad that in the running of their course that God allows, they are locked up and will be released for their judgment. So obviously these demons here do not want to go to that place because they want to create mayhem. They want to do their sinister things. 
And they know Jesus has the power. Why? Because the demons that are already incarcerated there, according to 2 Peter 2, are there because Jesus put them there. God put them there. The creator of the universe put them there. And they know Jesus has the sovereign power on the spot to send every one of them to that place. So if they're going to be cast out, if they're going to leave this poor wretch over whom they've had such control and put in such bondage, and if they're going to avoid the abyss at all costs, then they ask permission to possess a herd of swine up on the cliff, up on the plateau, and it was quite a large herd. Mark 5.13 tells us there were about 2,000 of them. So wealthy Gentile sort of house and, and estate up on the cliff, so to speak. Water property, nice view, huge herd. The wealthy pagans, 2,000 swine. And so the tormentor may be violent against this man, but when Jesus shows up, he's, he's got a weakness. He has, he's no match for the one who created all things. He's no match for the Lord of glory. He's no match for the sovereign one who is above all evil forces. Now notice Jesus had said, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. That seems to fit when you think about the, the swine. 2,000 swine go rushing off the cliff into the water. I, I can't even fathom a guy with a legion of demons. A legion was somewhere between two and 6,000, depending on where you were in ancient history and how the term was used. So you've got, Mark says, 2,000 pigs up on the plateau, and this group of demons in the man goes out of the man into the pigs. It's just hard to fathom that the bondage included that kind of collection of demons in one man. And so, you notice what happens. The herd of many swine, verse 32, is feeding there on the mountain. The demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Verse 33 says that they left the man, went into the swine, and down the hillside the swine went. Verse 34 says, when the herdmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. So, <laughs> I mean, it's very simple. The uh, demons were sent out of the man. The pigs were sent over the edge. <laughs> and the people were sent into a panic. That's basically the scene. It's chaos. It's utter chaos. What happens next is the most thrilling of all in this text. You see the power of Christ. You see the, the demons killing the, the herd, taking away the wealth, destroying the, the community, 
That was probably one of the biggest supports of that area. So Satan's always going after economics. There's always vengeful responses on the part of demons and to send the pigs down the side of the mountain and kill all that uh, livestock. There you have economic troubles and etc. Mayhem and disorder and disruption is always their, their purpose and their M.O., but when the herdsmen saw what happened, they ran away and reported in the city and out in the country, and the people went out to see what had happened. Of course, it's just, it's chaos. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out. And he was sitting down, okay, he hadn't done that in a non-restless fashion. He'd been in the tombs and... He'd been crying all night, day and night, no sleep, without clothes, exposed to the elements, running back and forth, sometimes bound, breaking out of it, driven back into the desert. He's an exhausted mass of chaos, and here they come out and they see him sitting down. And he is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is sort of terminology to indicate that like others in Jesus' life, who'd been rescued from horrific situations, either physical or even demonic, like Mary Magdalene, they would often then follow him around, and wherever he sat down, they sat down at his feet to learn, to stare at him for the love and mercy that he showed. The townspeople rush out. People from the country rush out. The crowd comes. The herdsmen are over near the water. The pigs are dead. The whole herd is gone. The finances are destroyed. The town is turned upside down. And when they come out, the town is in chaos. And the guy who no one would pass by and dare get involved with, he's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's learning. He's in awe. It says that he's fully clothed. Of course, whenever God saves someone from pagan, self-righteous, self-atonement, vice, and self-worship, there is a return to the understanding that your shame needs to be covered. There's an understanding that you do things God's way, that you don't pervert God's plan or his design. Of course, he's finally free of the evil and he puts clothes on. Of course. And the text says he's in his right mind. The people noticed it. You have to understand what's happening here. The people notice he's in his right mind. This isn't just a gospel writer saying, I think he's in his right mind, or someone saying, well, he seems calm. Maybe someone gave him a sedative, some herbs. No, the people saw that he was in his right mind. So the implication is he's sitting at Jesus' feet, and it's obvious he's conversing rationally. Clothes on would have been shock enough. No longer worried about... The, you know, the torments that were making him irrational and freezing his sanity. He's sitting there and he's talking and they're walking up on the scene. He's saying. And notice it says, and they became frightened. This is a typical response of a pagan. 
who doesn't want to repent. Typical response. Our gods have always done X, Y, Z for us. But we've never been able to subdue someone like that, even with our incantations and our worship. So it'd be like the apostles in the boat saying, who is this that even he commands the wind and the waves and they obey? It would be like them saying, who is this who can subdue someone that even our gods couldn't subdue? That's the typical reaction of a pagan when they see the power of the gospel and redemption and deliverance on display, but they don't want to repent. It's bizarre to them, too bizarre. It doesn't make sense to the false gods they worship. You have a pagan over here who lives all his life trying to self-atone, trying to get his own life right, and he keeps falling and stumbling, and behind him is a trail of messy living, and he meets a Christian, someone he knew in college, someone he knew to be just as wicked and in bondage, and that person says to his friend, I've been freed by Christ, I've been set free. For some, that's a message that draws their heart. For others, it's just frightening, it's just scary. You're weird, what what is going on with you? You don't make sense to me. That's what's happening here. Our God's made sense. You just turned the whole thing upside down. Nothing makes sense to me now. Those who had seen it, verse 36, reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. So now you got some eyewitness testimonies going on and all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district repented and believed the gospel. I wish it was Nineveh. You know what they did? You know, you're going to have to get out of here right now. You got to go. What, what is that? What is that? This is Satan still holding the land in bondage. And he's, he knows that Jesus is merciful and that God is pouring out his grace and The town, if they're given enough exposure to the gospel and God wants to save, guess what? There are going to be more. And the town is not soft. They're frightened. And they say to Jesus, you got to go. They were gripped with fear. The spirit sent out of the man, pigs sent over the edge, townspeople sent into a panic. What happens to this guy? Well, he's sent out as a witness. The man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. Jesus sent him away saying, you go to your house and you describe what great things God has done for you. So Jesus didn't, didn't snub the people. He didn't, did he? Look at the grace. He didn't snub the people. They snubbed him. They rejected him. They apparently loved their false worship and didn't want the children to see what this guy did and then their children, the next generation, might be interested in the gospel and reject the religion their parents had passed on to them. They didn't want that. They sent him away and God could have said, fine, you're done. I'm done with you. He could have taken this man with him. You come out of that land. I don't want you to be with those pagan people. God in his grace, because Jesus is on his mission to Jerusalem, and the disciples still need a lot to learn. He sends this man back in 
as a witness. <laughs> Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he did. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. He's sent by the grace of God to start talking to individuals one by one. So he was going to go into those towns. Can you imagine him walking into the city of Gadara? You heard what happened? Let me tell you, I'm free. The lines on his face changed. Gashes on his body heal. He's in his right mind. He's fully clothed. He starts some gainful employment at the local oxen where he, place and starts speaking to that guy. Hey, you need, to, you need to know Jesus delivered me. And maybe it's one, and then maybe it's a dad, and then maybe it's a teenager, and then maybe it's a child. And pretty soon, the east side of Galilee over near the Jordan, it's all the grace of God starts to spread, right? What kindness. How? The power of Almighty God. The power of Almighty God alone. The disciples were sent out to be witnesses to the remotest part of the earth, and Satan has never thwarted the grace of God in that. Our time is gone, but listen to Paul when he went before Agrippa. Acts chapter 26, listen to this. He tells Agrippa that Jesus told him, get up on your feet, for this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. So Paul was then another witness. In church history, the gospel swept through the North African continent and then the gospel went global and went through Asia. And then during the dark period of the European lands, the gospel became birthed and began to spread in massive ways into that dark place. 1400 John Huss, 1500s German Reformation, 16, 1700 Scottish and English Reformation. And then the Native Americans in this land met people who came over the ocean to share the gospel with them so that you and I could be delivered from the domain of Satan and into the kingdom of light. And you and me are sent out. And I'll tell you what, this country's getting darker. It's getting darker. You don't have to worry about the encroaching evil. You have a treasure, the treasure of the gospel in this earthen body so that the power may be of God and not from ourselves. You can't get any greater encouragement for telling your friends and family about the gospel than the power of Jesus to do what we just saw him do. Amen. Father, thank you for this morning and your love for us in giving us this narrative. Thank you for the sweet, precious way that you saved this man. Oh, we want to meet him and talk to him. When in glory we can chat with one another about how you have saved us, there will be this precious testimony and we want to meet those in Gadara and Gersa and the surrounding region who came to know you because of 
this man's witness and how Satan was thwarted. His pathetic attempts to overpower your grace, they never accomplish ultimately what he wants to accomplish because you always make grace abound. And so as our country degrades itself and descends into greater darkness, oh God, may we be those who proclaim you and your power to save. We pray in Christ's name, amen.